0: dear listeners or viewers this time, welcome to Startup Kitchen Talk, where we discuss startup apprentices becoming master chefs. My today guest is volcanologist and deep tech investor Zoe Reich, welcome to Startup Kitchen Talk. Thank you very much. Before we discuss paradigm shifts, let's uh, ask something about tectonic shifts. Uh, How many active volcanoes have you visited?
1: Oh gosh, not enough is always the right answer. It was uh, <laughs> definitely a subject that I chose for the field trips and that's firmly what I stood by all throughout <laughs> my, my research time. So the more that you can do, the better. So but, are we talking tens or...? Yeah, definitely in the tens. So my, my particular focus was in, in the poles as well, looking at Antarctica and Iceland. So uh, really good, really good so, on the, the travel.
0: Um, and what is more extraordinary to see? An active volcano or a startup that survives with their unicorn status during uh, economic crisis? It's more a question of which one do you want to see?
1: (laughs) You probably don't want to be that close to an active volcano unless you're one of me who uh, runs towards these things rather than away. Um, But no, I mean, actually, my personal opinion is that as you've been through a a decline of the broader market is an amazing time as a venture investor to look at these companies, Um, those that succeed now show exactly the kind of resilience that you are looking for in these founders. And from an investment point of view, valuations are increasingly more favorable. Um, You've got a question of the really good are getting funded rather than a broader sense of the population that may or may not be successful going forward.
0: Well, that's a nice eruption of uh, positivity (laughs) (laughs) and and not to deepen the ditch called Brexit. But if we start out talking some differences between uh, Great Britain and uh, its startup ecosystem system and continental europe is there something fundamentally british uh, about uh, the startup and the vc world something you know some full english uh, of startups
1: apart from the cynicism and the dry humor that generally goes I, the
0: I think we kind of <laughs> shared with the uh, ce region definitely with the czech republic about the the sarcastic and uh, ironic point of view of stuff uh, at least we really like to think so, uh, so enough. apart from Fair that enough.
1: apart from that so I, I look at deep tech, which is a real frontier innovation. Uh, It's uh, technology that comes from a true scientific breakthrough, very heavy on the intellectual property. And the greatest defining factor is this step change in benefit to the end customer. We are looking for uh, the big bang of improvement versus the incremental increase that you'd often see with a B2B SaaS company, Mm -hmm. for example. And in the UK, we are very blessed in terms of the research ecosystem that we have. As within broader Europe um, but you would go for different research groups in different countries depending on uh, what is their background what do they really specialize in so the type of companies that I look for from the UK would be very different to say looking in Mm -hmm. Paris around the the robotics hub there the AI hub that they have versus maybe life sciences in the golden triangle here.
0: All right, uh, we'll tackle some of the subjects of uh, Deep Tech later, Uh, but you mentioned that it differentiates itself in its true essence because we're talking different, you know, paradigm shifts, Uh, uh, but it... It's in its sense. It sometimes contradicts the startup stereotypes, you know, the fast money because it takes longer. It requires patient capital, etc. Do you sometimes have troubles to explain that to that um, that to your stakeholders?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, as a venture capital fund, your stakeholders are often your limited partners, those who are investing in the fund, and particularly in deep tech, they're not necessarily always there for a financial return. Um, often it could be other strategic reasons. Uh, for example, it could be a global OEM who is mm-hmm. looking for this deep tech for their long-term competitive advantage uh, for adoption from the Series A onwards point of view. So uh, does the long maturity impact the same way as it would a pure financial investor? No, no. Um, I would say the diversity of interests in deep tech are often broader Mm -hmm. than if it is a pure financial fund.
0: So it takes maybe a little bit more time to persuade them or to... Explain them why the deep tech is that important. Yeah, I mean. It's not just fast money. You know. Yeah,
1: deep tech, it, it is fundamentally important in that if we are going to solve things like uh, climate change, food security, water security, we have to be investing in these novel innovations. They are problems that can be solved, but we need to look for frontier technological solutions in order to do that. So when you're going to your stakeholders, you need to make sure that their needs and wants are aligned with yours uh, within the deep tech realm, which is often on the impact side, uh, purely as opposed to just the financial side.
0: And so uh, when it sounds uh, way more complicated uh, than, you know, the usual SaaS solutions. So what did you choose, deep tech?
1: Gosh, Just love it. I mean, (laughs) who doesn't want to solve these massive challenges that you have out there? Uh, The thought that you could look at a carbon capture company uh, through to, I don't know, more effective and efficient ways of the generation of ammonia, that if we didn't have it in a scalable manner, we would have roughly about 50% less food than we have at the moment in terms of agricultural production. So uh, for me, it really is, A, I adore the science, um, but also the potential impact that deep tech can have. I mean, it says a lot that 97% of deep tech companies out there meet the sustainable development goals mm-hmm. in one way or another. So it is that interface between wonderful breakthrough science, which it is you know, an absolute joy to try and get to the bottom of and assess, can it really do that transition from lab to field? Um, as well as the potential impact on world challenges, that a reason why I love deep tech.
0: Yeah, it really attracts like this science curiosity. And yeah. when I hear you and see you talking about it, you're so enthusiastic. Wouldn't you consider being, you know, deep tech founder yourself?
1: So I was a founder um, and um, I like weekends, <laughs> but it, it's definitely <laughs> and life and life, you know, and a separation and between work yeah. and life. Yeah. Um, but no, no, uh, in, in all honesty, uh, deep tech founders are absolutely amazing because often they come from an academic background. And if we look across Europe, around about 85% of deep tech founders are first time founders and they've decided to make that leap from academia into entrepreneurship, which uh, it might sound fairly linear and oh, you know, relatively easy, but it is anything but. You are going from an incredibly technical, risk-adverse environment, very process-driven in terms of your grant application, your factors of success, how many publications, citations do you get, into something that mm-hmm. is just inherently very risky, um, you are expected to be a true grafter, the future is very uncertain, and uh, really getting to grips with a commercial world that you haven't had to interact with in the same way before. So those who can successfully make the leap from academic into founder, it, it's, it's something truly amazing to appreciate.
0: Are there some common uh, misconceptions uh, and misunderstandings when it comes to deep tech from your experience?
1: Um, I think uh, there are a number of people out there that assume that machine learning is, is deep tech, um, whether it is on the novel algorithm side, mm-hmm. which I would say is, uh, or just the application of a, an off the shelf product into a, into a new environment. So when we talk about deep tech, it really is there has to be a new breakthrough uh, that is the component of this so deep you tech mean, like, innovation.
0: Um, if there is a greenwashing, this would be like deep tech. Washing, or yes, something. yes, yeah,
1: yeah. a little bit at the moment. If you put Gen AI in front of something yes, like, yes, is yes. that deep tech? Well, not necessarily.
0: And so it's a new blockchain, right? There was an ice cream. You can call it blockchain ice cream. <laughs> but uh, but the fields that deep tech um, covers are enormous. Um, uh, from yeah, machine learning, AI, uh, blockchain, quantum, etc. How how deeply do you personally need to understand that? Like, are you uh, familiar with the uh, photonic quantum computer etc.
1: Uh, That one I am. Okay, yeah.
0: yeah, Gosh, goodness, you chose that example. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um,
1: So uh, I back a company called uh, Orca Computing, which is a photonics uh, quantum hardware company. Um, But do you have to be familiar with all of the different technological areas that you have put into a deep tech fund? The answer is absolutely not. That's going to be impossible for you as a general partner to have that technological insight into all of these different areas. And even if you were an expert, I mean, my academic background is in creating climate models. When you've come out of that operational field or that uh, scientific field for a number of years, you you are not going to be up to date on what is the most breakthrough research that's coming through. What is important is to know what you don't know Mm -hmm. so that you can then reach out to an appropriate due diligence network that is still at the cutting edge or equally on the adoption side. So in terms of those two pools, you're having people that say, right, I can underwrite that this technology is frontier and it can potentially make that transition from lab into field. Or on the adoption side, you're saying that XYZ large corporates, yes, this is a priority area for them, and they are going to have that appetite to spend and spend now on taking this technology and. Really putting into action in their environment.
0: I, I bet that uh, science curiosity help when dealing with founders. Yes. Does it also affect when you're building building your team? Like uh, when you are hiring analysts, for example, are they having more business or science background?
1: Yeah, so it definitely helps with founders. Um, So I also come from a technology transfer background as well, working at that interface between university research and the commercial world. And being able to, you know, resonate with the founders on a a level of, ah, I get your technology and also I can see the appropriate route to market and the challenges that come with that, that's very key Mm -hmm. and important. But in terms of building out a team, Yes, you would look for people with different uh, scientific backgrounds to cover the different technology areas. So we are a broader investment team of 70 Mm -hmm. at uh, Octopus Ventures, uh, which allows us to have everything from synthetic biologists to material scientists, to say I'm a climate scientist, that breadth of understanding, which it's not to go down into the very minute levels of the individual technology, but to my point it's to say, right, this is what I can say about the technology, this is why I do think it will work, and most importantly, I'm therefore going to go out to leading academics uh, to fill in the blanks for me.
0: We already mentioned quantum, Mm. and uh, Britain is second only to the United States when it comes to attracting... quantum startups attracting uh, investment. Yes. What is is the connection of Great Britain and and quantum computing?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, there's a global interest in in quantum computing. Um, If some of the claims become reality, and it's still very much within that uh, process at the moment, you know, within a couple of seconds, or maybe that's slight exaggeration, let's go for minutes, (laughs) um, the output from a quantum computer could be the same as what it would take about 10,000 years with the standard computer. So, you know, that kind of huge step change in benefit is, A, exactly what we're excited as, as a deep tech investor, but the promise in the commercial realm is, is huge, um, from logistical planning of cities to, um, let's think about, pharma applications, drug discovery. It's massive. So that's why there is this global interest. But particularly in the UK, you look at the strength of our research institutions here, I mean, we have four out of 10 of the world's top research mm-hmm. institutions, and that covers quantum, but also uh, a number of the different technological areas on hardware as well. So everything from photonics to iron trap, you've got that breadth here. And as of yet, no one hardware option has won out yeah. So it is as a country brilliant to have players even though the in most the different.
0: Image is the IBM golden uh, variant. Who
1: doesn't love a golden chandelier? Yeah. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah.
0: even made it to Black Mirror. Um,
1: Black Mirror yeah. Oh, the, fantastic! Uh, yeah, I mean season. that's not scary at all. No, 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 um, but, no that's not <laughs>
0: scary. All. Yeah. Um, I've read your article mentioning the ambitious British plan to build a. £50 billion uh, uh, fund. And I wanted to ask, how do you perceive the government role in the startup VC ecosystem? Do you think uh, that the role should be very active, like, you know, proactively offer some um, incentives? Or it should be more like, you know, let the open market invisible hand uh, deal with it on its own?
1: I mean, I don't think the, the government role can be underestimated. It is critically important from a number of different reasons. Everything from uh, translational grant funding, which is that process of trying to escape from the university walls, i.e. build a demonstrator that goes from the, the lab uh, out to into a space to be tested into the field. And that is a risk appetite that sits beyond Mm -hmm. most uh, venture capital funds or angel investors. So the role of government there is really critical. And going back a number of years now, things like the University Challenge Seed Fund was a really good example of that being put into action. So on the grant funding side, Innovate UK is a huge player in the UK. Uh, It's not uncommon for if you are raising something like uh, three million round as a pre-seed deep tech uh, startup, then a third or two million or something like that could come from grant funding, which when you don't have an awful lot to base your valuation on, uh, it really helps in protecting the dilution Mm -hmm. of these companies. And the reason the government does that is because these technologies are seen as being absolutely essential for the long-term growth of UK PLC. If we are going to have this innovation economy, uh, we need to be backing these technologies at an early stage. But, you know, that government interaction goes through into policy, starting Mm -hmm. to think about um, AI regulation test beds uh, through to also signaling to the wider investment community.
0: And do government here understand it like uh, technically and business wise do they know what they are talking about when they are making new policies when they are writing new grants um from your experience do they uh, do it because sometimes there's this struggle right about yeah. like if there's a new grant so we will build startup just according to fit the you know the excel sheets uh, so how is it here this situation
1: yeah i i I do think they do. I mean, it's an incredibly complex job with a huge number of stakeholders involved. Um, So there are going to be a lot of supporters or critiques of any uh, regulation that comes through. But, you know, things like the, the mansion house announcement, which is to make use of uh, pension monies for early stage uh, venture capital. That is absolutely huge. That's going to increase the volume of capital into the venture ecosystem by you know, orders of magnitude. Uh, and that is a really good example of the government understanding and working with the private sector to say, right, what can we do that's going to have a real impact on the ecosystem?
0: You know, we sometimes, we aliens sometimes struggle uh, with the paradox of British innovation system because you have this like tradition and super long history on one side and sometimes, you know, old fashioned rule and, and uh, I don't know, 100 years old loss uh, about taxi drivers. Um, and on the other hand, you have the disruption tech and, and quantum and AI, etc cetera, that uh, UK like kind of leads the way. So how how do those two lines align like how uh, how do they cooperate does it sometimes you know heads the fence does it sometimes collide or is it like you know you can just exist be traditional and be disruptive at the same time
1: oh i think you absolutely can i mean that this <laughs> I love going to uh, some of the colleges, um, and you were there. You were there for dinner. You were sitting in your gown. It could not be more traditional. And then you were talking about some kind of breakthrough photonic chip that is going to have these, you know, significant impacts in terms of uh, computer efficiency and cost effectiveness. Uh, so I love that kind of um, difference that you get between the two ecosystems. But. Yes, it can. I mean, we, we do have these amazing research bases. And yes, they are often uh, relatively old universities, but their policies and the cutting edge nature of what they're doing is very on point.
0: You are a competitive powerlifter. I am indeed, yes. It is surprising and amazing. And so <laughs> I have a question. What is more difficult to lift 1.5 times your body weight Or the spirit of a worthy academic and persuade him or her to commercialize their research.
1: That is super easy. You never try and persuade an academic to commercialize (laughs) their research. I would take lifting your body weight any, (laughs) any day. Um, No, in in all seriousness, it's very rarely the lead academic that comes and uh, leads these companies in that they've built up a reputation in academia for decades and actually that blue skies research is what they're really good at. It's not necessarily the productization or the go-to-market and it's often one of the more entrepreneurial Mm postdocs or PhD students that will come and lead the company. Do they
0: sometimes make it difficult for the, you know, because you mentioned the 85 I think you said yes. 85% uh, of the deep tech founders are first time founders. Yes. Um, I have a follow-up question on that as well, but at the same time, doesn't that create some conflict with the worthy academics, like saying, and this, you know, uh, um, 20-something person is now telling me uh, what, uh, what will the future look like, for example. Doesn't that create some um, uh, animosity?
1: Um, it's really something that I've seen. I mean, it theoretically could, of course. Um, but if you go into academia and... Overgeneralizing here, but the type of character traits that are in academia, they're really interested in the impact of their research. That is a huge driver of what they do, is not just finding something new and exciting within the industry, but actually how do you translate that out beyond university to have an impact on everyday lives. So if you have somebody from their research group that can take on that challenge and mantle and do it successfully, you will often find great support within the academic community for for what they're doing.
0: So many VCs have this, um, you know, VC thesis, um, investor thesis when they say they don't want to work with uh, first-time founders, like at least second-time founder. So uh, what would you uh, recommend them?
1: I just don't think you can do that in deep tech. I mean, if that is your thesis, then you are automatically going to be cutting down your universe so substantially that you are most certainly going to miss out on some of the really compelling technologies that are coming through. So uh, to do that would be a real challenge, but therefore you you do have to be very creative in how are you going to get greater experience into this company to help open doors, networks that a first time founder might struggle or take years to do. And that's where we're seeing some really interesting innovation in terms of the Mm -hmm. VC ecosystem. How can they provide capital, networks, more effective and efficient routes to market, uh, end customers? you're seeing greater specialization of VC funds that will target one aspect of that and do it very well.
0: As you describe, uh, Deep Tech strongly relies on academia and you have experience with that not only from Octopus Ventures, but also before when you managed uh, university funds even at Oxford, right?
1: Yes, that's right. So I managed university funds at Oxford on behalf of the Welsh Government and Imperial College.
0: And uh, how did that, I don't know, how, how long uh, time ago, how long that was?
1: Over the last decade or so.
0: So how do you think that developed, like if you compare the, the starting point of of the mm. technology transfer, university transfer, to where the situation is now?
1: I mean, it's developed on so many angles. In some ways, it's an unrecognisable ecosystem from when I first started. Um, that's on a series of fronts, whether it is a uh, formalisation of university spin-out policy, uh, just as a greater number of companies go through and universities work to try and find a way of getting these companies out effectively or in line with what market wants. Uh, The amount of available capital, uh, the increase in VC funding and interest in deep tech has gone exponentially up. Um, As well as just an appreciation within the academic community that entrepreneurship is a route in terms of their career. If you start as a PhD student, go on to a postdoc, you're not necessarily then looking for an academic tenure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could take your IP and go and create this uh, novel company.
0: VCs are sometimes discouraged to, um, to invest when they see university on the cap table. Yes. Um, yeah, that was. A <laughs> I went to ask if that happened and uh, if, if it's different in Octopus Ventures.
1: Yeah. The, the question is, yes, we can. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. More VCs uh, don't want to invest where the invest on the cap table. That creates an amazing opportunity for me. <laughs> so uh, if if that happens, that's brilliant. Um, no, it's true, and it's all down to proportions. Uh, in that. Where people stay away from is where universities have a significant chunk of that mm-hmm. founding shareholding.
0: And if we uh, like uh, put some number on the yeah. deck, what, what chunk is too large? What do you think?
1: Yeah, so historically we've seen um, universities take up to 50% of their founding shareholding, which is a real challenge. Yeah. It's huge. Those who are actually running the company are not very incentivized, especially as you get dilution throughout the rounds. But what is increasingly common is somewhere around about the 20%. And that is something that you can work with. Uh, you put an appropriate valuation on the company and then you can build up the founders with option pools, for example, those who are mm-hmm. staying on and running the company.
0: As a scientist, I meant to ask you, like, do you believe that the science research itself should be market driven, like navigated uh, by supply and demand?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, If you look at some of the real breakthrough technologies, um, have they been market driven, i.e. this is a problem, therefore we fund the research group in order to go and explore it. They create the intellectual property to solve that problem. When we had a look, it was roughly about 25-30% of the cases in terms of deep tech companies that are coming out of Europe. So it's very important to still Mm -hmm. have that blue skies research and trying to identify this nugget of commercial potential that comes out as a result and then goes into commercialization.
0: To follow up on one of the most significant British authors, second only to Shakespeare, and I do mean Douglas Adams, (laughs) uh, who describes Earth and our human love of death as... An utterly insignificant little blue-green planet whose ape-descendant life forms are so amazingly primitive that they still think digital watches are a pretty neat idea. Were
1: well, they just talking about VCs? <laughs> <for> they're <quite laughs> <all. laughs> What population are we talking about?
0: I meant to ask you, what do you think that comes... Uh, what are the next digital watch, basically? Yeah. What do you think is the ne- next big thing, like the biggest thing? Because we, you know, Deep Tech spreads around um, and uh, tackles various fields. But what do you, Zoe, personally think it will be the next digital watch?
1: Yeah, I mean... <sighs> My fundamental belief is that if we are going to solve climate change, mm-hmm. food security, water security, we have to look to deep tech innovations. You know, whether that is scalable carbon capture, um, whether it is uh, distributed ammonia production, use of hydrogen. Uh, so, particularly on the energy transition, deep tech is really key to do it in an effective, affordable, and scalable manner, certainly. But also in terms of the likes of future of computing, um, greening of data centers, uh, as we look to go beyond uh, Moore's law in terms of how do we get high performance compute when uh, Energy efficient manner—that uh, is going to be really key and interesting.
0: So um, the next digital watch is more of a climate challenge. <laughs> yes, it's not that optimistic.
1: <laughs> Let, let's say uh, you've got a countdown on the watch to uh, oh, to, to tackle the, the climate well, issue. Well.
0: And uh, if the British startup ecosystem was the Hogwarts, would investors be uh, Ravenclaw or Slytherin?
1: Um, this is going to be incredible bias here, uh, which is, I would say if it depends if you're talking about sort of later stage investors or earlier stage investors. Um, So I think if you're going to be an early stage investor, it is a hugely collaborative enterprise. Um, A, you very rarely do a deal alone. Uh, You are looking at bringing something particular to the table and working with a syndicate. So you are more of the good guys versus trying to just get as large a stake of the round as possible. Um, But also it's quite rare that you see an opportunity that is fully investable from when you first see it. Uh, You are often trying to think about how can they accelerate through technology validation? Are they really going on the right path of customer discovery? So it is collaborative from uh, even creating a deal Side as well as getting the funding together. So I would say more Ravenclaw at the early stage.
0: At the early stage. At later stage we go a little bit uh, snake and green. Understood. Um, I can say that as an early stage investor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's change if you uh, let's see if you ever change uh, yeah. the stage. Then you will you'll be like, yeah, we're a Gryffindor. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, we spent some time talking about deep tech, but there are other deeps to explore. Uh, your parents uh, were sh- uh, scuba divers instructors.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's Is right. that
0: where you? Because you already talk about uh, your uh, passion of traveling to you know beautiful places. Yeah. Um, is that where it comes from? Uh, I think so.
1: Yeah, I think so. So uh, I've been lucky enough to see some amazing places in the world, um, whether that is uh, Malaysia, Mozambique, Australia. And I think it it definitely gave me an appreciation for the power of nature. Um, So hence, in part, some of the fascination of climate technologies, but also how do we find this interaction of sustainability between new technology and the way that we live?
0: and what was the best food you've ever eaten while travelling
1: best food uh yeah. well if my husband's listening to this your dinners of course <laughs> darling
0: they are absolutely lovely um and what is the uh, what is the most typical uh, polish food um what that uh beetroot soup is oh, a, yeah. is oh. a very
1: big one yeah
0: Uncheck, <laughs> them. <man>. I understand.
1: <laughs> yeah, that one you you have it once at a Christmas, and you realize you never wear white ever again found, for a Polish Christmas.
0: Uh, yeah, d- definitely. Okay, so yeah, apart from uh, your husband as a cooking,
1: yeah, I'm I'm a huge baking fan. Like oh. anything that's got flour, sugar, eggs is a win.
0: Uh, but the, the uh, but that would be like what is the who's the uh, biggest Bake Off country? Is that Britain?
1: Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess every there's probably a national bake in every in every country. Yeah.
0: Um, we already discussed something old fashioned yet functional. So, and I know you like climbing, so I brought you something that is the bingo of all the three. <laughs> And this is this, uh, amazing oh, chicken.
1: amazing.
0: Thank you. Do you so know much? what it is? Probably. Oh, I do very much know what it is. <laughs> I know it's on fashion and I uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It is factually. It comes from Czech Republic. My father still uh, climbs on that and repels ah, on that. Fantastic. So oh, so thank you ever cool. so much. <laughs> you, you're welcome. Uh, so, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Thank you so much.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thank you.